But today I'm going to be looking at a, a section in John chapter 24, and I'll set the stage for you here in just a moment. Uh, but really, uh, the, the, from the opening call to worship out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, our message today out of Joshua 24, uh, and even in our closing portion of the service today where we uh, take time to dedicate uh, children to the Lord, um, all of this service has been built around this concept of, of this question, who will you serve? Um, who are we going to serve? And uh, I'll, I'll set the stage for that. I, I'm going to begin with not to get anybody, anybody's stomachs a little bit hungry. If you're hungry already, I apologize. But, but how many of you in this room love to go to buffets? Uh, any people that love buffets? A few people? I saw a few quick hands like, yes, absolutely. I'm a buffet kind of guy. I remember uh, growing up, uh, oftentimes uh, we would go to Ponderosa. Um, and I, I, I wasn't a salad guy, so I'd go and I'd hit up all the, you know, maybe the meat, maybe the, um, you know, all of the sides, all of the carbs, pretty much. I'm not a, I'm not a, a salad guy, I'm a carb guy. That's my, you know, that's my kind of food. Um, and, and so the nice thing about a buffet is, you know, I have all of those items at my disposal. Um, I don't have to choose one. Um, I don't have to look at a menu and say, I'm going to take that today and I'll pass on this. I can have it all. That's the beauty, beauty of a buffet, whether it's Ponderosa, um, Golden, is it Golden Corral, um, or uh, Ryan's. I, I don't even know Ryan's is in, in business anymore. I know it's not in Muncie, but Ryan's Steakhouse, also a buffet. Um, and, and so I think oftentimes, now usually what happens is we walk away from a buffet regretting the decisions that we made uh, because we have all of those items at our disposal. We can look at them, we can, we can put everything on our plate and it looks good, it sounds good in the moment. About 15 minutes later, you walk away and you're like, man, it was a bad choice. Uh, I should have just chose one item, not seven um, side items to put on my plate. But, but I think one of the things <coughs> that we do um, and I, I want to make this jump or this leap this morning. When we think about a buffet, the beauty about it is we don't have to choose. If I, uh, if I want mashed potatoes, french fries, and a baked potato, I can have it all on my plate. I don't have to say to the server, well, today I want my side to be a baked potato uh, and wait till next week before I go back to get the mashed potatoes. I can have it all. That's the beauty of a buffet. I don't have to pick and choose. I don't have to commit to one item. I can have it all. Now, the thing about that is sometimes I think we, we take that approach of a buffet into our, our spiritual life, and, and we start to look at it from a perspective of, well, I, I don't have to choose one thing, and when we, when we approach our spiritual life from a buffet kind of perspective, it begins to throw things out of whack. This mentality won't work when it comes to our relationship with God. We cannot approach God like we approach the buffet at Ryan's Golden Corral or Ponderosa. It doesn't work the same way. We, we can't approach our relationship with God in such a way to say, you know what, I, I want to serve God passionately, but I also want to embrace all of the things that the world has to offer. That's not how we can and should approach our relationship with God. He does not want us to approach him with, with this kind of non-committal attitude. Uh, I would suggest to you that probably our culture today, um, all across the board, at some level, whether it's, uh, whether it's in relationship to a person or a thing, we struggle with this idea of committing to something. Uh, I, I had the privilege and the honor when I first came on staff at Glad Tidings Church to serve as the college ministries pastor. And one of my responsibilities was to, to host um, occasional, usually once a month, kind of fellowship events or gatherings for the college-age students. We had about 30 college-age students that, that were coming to Glad Tidings at the time that, that were involved um, in, in our ministry. 
And I know this was about the time when I started getting into um, the Facebook realm, and we still do this today. There are Facebook events that you can create um, when you want host to host an event. And we, we invite anybody we want to invite to that event. And so when I was overseeing the college age ministry, I created a Facebook event and I would, um, you know, if we're gonna have a, a fellowship night, I would invite all 30 of those college age students to come. And with the Facebook events, it's still the same today. You have a couple options. You can say, yes, I'm going. Um, and I think it's changed slightly today. And maybe it's going, maybe it's interested. Um, they, they changed it up a little bit, but it used to be, yes, I'm going no, I'm not going. And then there was the infamous maybe. <laughs> I don't know about you, but you cannot plan an event, especially for college kids, you, college kids. You cannot plan an event based on the infamous maybe. And I will tell you, and I'm not exaggerating this by any, any measure, um, this is what usually happened. I would get one yes, I would get one no, and I would get 28 maybes. And uh, that was very, very challenging. But they, the, the reality is I, I really knew deep down in my heart that, that the maybe was I don't really want to commit to this. Um, and also, I don't really want to hurt your feelings. So I'm going to click maybe like I might come, but there's a good chance I'm not coming. And I knew that. I knew that deep down. But that's, that's how we work. Um, we, we approach things. We don't want to commit. We don't want to settle down. But again, we cannot approach When it comes to our relationship with God, we cannot approach it from a non-committal, buffet-type approach. The reality is that God wants all of our hearts. We can't split our devotion. We can't split our heart between God and the things of this world. He is longing for, he wants our entire heart. That's why he will say to love the Lord your God, not with 75% or or 98.9%. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Uh, A better translation of that is just to simply say to love God with all of your very all. So the reality is when it comes to our relationship with God and we're asking ourselves this question, who are we gonna serve? We can't split our heart and say, okay, God, I'm gonna give you 50% of my heart and I'm gonna give the world 50% of the heart. That's not how it works. We can't split our devotion, our passion, our heart when it comes to our relationship with God. He wants our all. We know this is true even from early Christianity, the first few two or three centuries Uh, Christians in the first couple of centuries really didn't have a choice to kind of split their devotion. They couldn't say, well, I'm gonna serve God, but I'm also gonna embrace the ways of this world. It didn't work like that. For the first three centuries, they were either all in or they weren't because they had to make a decision. They either confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord, their Savior, and their Master, and if they did, it most likely meant death for them or they would choose to reject him altogether. I say all of that today because we're going to look at a text in Scripture. We're going to look at the life of Joshua, really the end of his life. Joshua was a a military leader. I want to just kind of set the stage for you real briefly. Um, I think most of us may know who Moses is. Uh, Moses is the, the one who went back to Egypt, and he went before King Pharaoh, and he said to Pharaoh, I want you to let my people go. And he did that 10 times. Uh, finally, after 10 plagues, actually, he really went before Pharaoh more than that. But after 10 plagues, finally, Pharaoh said, yes, Moses, you can take the people. You can take all of them. You can take what they own, what belongs to them, um, and, and you can get out of here. He was frustrated because of the final plague that came upon them. So Moses is the guy that leads Israel um, into the wilderness. 
Several things unfold. I'm just giving you a a brief, quick synopsis. I don't have time to tell you the whole story of Moses. Um, You can go read it. Go read Exodus and look at, well, if you read Leviticus, you might not keep reading. So at least read Exodus, all right? And and you'll get the story of of Moses and begin to understand what his role, what his ministry was. But Moses was the guy that goes before Pharaoh. He brings Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, and he goes and he takes them and he leads them through the wilderness. It wasn't supposed to take 40 years. It was supposed to be a whole lot quicker of a journey than that. But because of their rebellion, their disobedience, their rejection of God, they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies And then the generation that was born in the wilderness outside of Joshua and Caleb, Joshua and Caleb came out of bondage as well, but every single other person that was born in Egypt and came out of that bondage, they died in the wilderness and then a new generation arose. And you get to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is the leader. He's the guy in charge. He's the one that's representing God to the people and people to the God. So he's sort of serving as the mediator between between God and between the people. But Moses comes to the end of his life and and he's not allowed to go into the promised land. They are now standing on the edge. They They are looking out at the land of promise, the land that God promised to God's people many years ago. They are now standing on the edge of that land, getting ready to go into the land of Canaan to take what what God has given to them. But Moses isn't the guy that's gonna lead them. The guy that's gonna lead them is a guy by the name of Joshua. Uh, Joshua was one of the assistants of Moses. You can read about him in, in Exodus and in Numbers and Deuteronomy. He was, he was the guy that kind of the, the second in charge. He was more of the military leader. Uh, he was more of the guy that would be fighting in the battle, leading the way while, while Moses was seeking the face of God. And so Moses is gonna die. At the end of Deuteronomy, we see Moses' final speech, his final will and testament. He dies and Joshua now has been tasked with the responsibility of leading this entire group of people into the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And now Joshua is the man that's gonna lead them into Jericho, one of the first places they go and they, they fight. Uh, well, they don't really fight. They march around the walls of Jericho. The walls of Jericho fall down and they're able to conquer that city. Eventually they'll conquer city after city after city. Read the entire book of Joshua and you will get a, a, a picture of the conquest that took place when Joshua served as their military leader. So Joshua, he's the military leader of Israel and he's following Moses' command. He is the successor. He's the one that Moses said, okay, I'm dying. I can't go any further. So now the next person that's gonna lead you, the next person that's gonna to, to be the one that takes you into the land of promise is gonna be Joshua. And so Moses hands Joshua the baton and says, you're the man. You're the guy that's gonna carry on what I have started in terms of leading God's people into the land of promise. And so what we see, what we're going to look at here in just a moment in Joshua 24, fast forward now to the end of Joshua's life. Joshua was the military leader. He's the one that, that helped Israel obtain the promised land, the land of Canaan. He's the one that, that helped them to, to get possession of a land that God described as a land that was flowing with milk and honey, a, a land that was beautiful, that had all kinds of resources. Joshua was the guy that led them in that conquest to obtain and possess that land. And now Joshua, just like Moses, Joshua is coming to the end of his life, the end of his ministry. And he stands before the congregation, the, the people of Israel, in his final moments. And he calls them to choose whom they will serve. Joshua knows that he's about ready to die and that, that he's going to pass on. 
And he wants to make sure that this group of people, they've now come into the land, they've possessed this land that God had given to them. They've now inherited all of these beautiful resources and he wants to make sure that they remember who it is that they are serving. They're not serving the the gods of the other nations. They're not serving uh, the people of the other nations. They are to serve Yahweh, God and God alone. And so in Joshua chapter 24, this is where we see this call of Joshua. Joshua 24, if you have your Bibles, you can open up verse 14 and verse 15, also up here on the screen. Listen to what Joshua says to the people of God. He says this, so fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshiped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, Joshua said, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, Euphrates River? Um, He's actually referring to beyond the Euphrates River is most likely where Abraham came from. So he's talking about uh, the gods of Mesopotamia. Would you prefer those gods or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But then listen to what Joshua says. Joshua is about ready. His, his life and his ministry is coming to, the end, to, the, to an end. And he makes this beautiful statement as he stands before all of Israel and he challenges and he calls them and he says this, but as for me, Joshua says, and my family, we're gonna serve the Lord. So Joshua stands among the crowd of Israel and he says to them, you need to make a choice today. You need to choose who you're gonna serve. Are you gonna serve the Lord and the Lord alone? Or are you gonna give yourselves over to the gods of these nations? Are you gonna serve the people here? Or are you gonna try to split your devotion because that's not how it works. And then Joshua makes a bold declaration before the people of God and he says, as for me, as your leader, as the one that's led you in this conquest, Joshua says, as for me and my family, my household, we're gonna serve the Lord. That was, that was the declaration that Joshua made before the people of God. Now it's very, side note, this really has nothing to do with the sermon uh, other than the fact that that, that verse, Joshua 24, uh, verse 15 um, maybe some of you have that up in your house somewhere, um, and, and maybe you don't. I don't know. It's one, of, it's one of those verses that many many people will have on a picture frame or something in their house. Um, it's in our restroom. It's in our bathroom. Uh, every single day, uh, when I get out of the shower, one of the first things that I see um, every single morning is I see that verse and plant it up on our wall. It says, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. So I want to talk about this this morning. What does it look like for us to serve the Lord with an undivided heart and an unwavering commitment? Because that's what, that's what God is calling us to. He's not calling us to give, to give part of our heart to him. He's not calling us to serve him half-heartedly. He wants all of us. He wants our entire heart and our entire life. He wants complete surrender. So what does that look like? What does complete surrender look like when it comes to our relationship with God. There are three kind of exhortations, words of challenge or words of encouragement that Joshua will give to the people of God just before his passing. We're gonna go back a chapter, chapter 23. And really Joshua chapter 23 and 24 is really really comprised of, of Joshua's final farewell address. 
Again, Joshua knows that, that his life is coming to a close. He knows that his ministry is coming to an end. He knows that, that the people are gonna be without him as a leader. So Joshua basically is trying to say everything that he possibly can in those two chapters. He wants to address the people of God in really his final will and testament. If I knew that today was my last day here at Dunkirk Glad Tidings, I probably would, I, I would just have a list of a bunch of things that I wanna say, but I'm hoping God still has me here for a little bit longer, all right? Um, so, but that's, this is what Joshua knows. His life is coming to an end. So, so he wants to make sure that he addresses the most important thing with these people, all based around this concept, this, this understanding, this question that he poses to the people, who are you gonna serve? And Joshua makes it clear, me and my household, we're gonna serve the Lord. But, but he goes back to them, who are you going to serve? So what does it look like? This, in this farewell address, he makes it clear what serving the Lord looks like. And I just wanna share three brief things with you this morning. I'm gonna give these to you quickly. Um, I'll try not to uh, wander too far. Uh, Number one, we must first of all be unflinching in our commitment to observing everything in God's word. Unflinching in our commitment to observing everything in God's word. I wanna just paint this picture for you real briefly. Prior to, to leading Israel, into the land of Canaan. So Moses dies and now Joshua has been handed the baton of leadership. He's the guy that's been marked with the task of leading God's people into Israel. Before he does anything, the Lord comes to Joshua and speaks to him. Joshua chapter one, verse seven and eight, we read these words. It says, be strong. This is God now, this is in the very beginning. Joshua hasn't even, hasn't even spoken to the people yet. Moses has died and now Joshua is the man that's gonna lead them into Israel. And so before anything happens, before, before they march into battle, into Jericho, the very first thing is God comes to Joshua and listen to what God says to Joshua. Be strong, be steadfast, be unmovable and very courageous. Be careful to obey, God says, all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything that is written in it. Only then, God says, will you prosper and succeed in all you do. So before Joshua says a word to the people of God, before he leads them into battle, the very first thing that God says to Joshua is, I want you to make sure that you are strong, you are steadfast, you are courageous, and I want you to obey every instruction in this book that has been given to you. And, and so, and then what's very interesting is that is in chapter one, and then we've already, uh, or we'll look then later on in chapter 23 in his final farewell address, Joshua is gonna challenge the people of God to have that same unwavering commitment to God's word. Look, as, look at what he says then later on. So they've gone into battle, they've conquered the land, they've settled the land. And so Joshua now at the end of his life, God said to Joshua, obey everything that's in this book. And now Joshua is gonna stand before the people of God and he will say in verse six, so be very careful to do what? To follow everything that Moses wrote in the book of instruction. Do not deviate from it, turning either to the right or to the left. So the very instructions that God gave to Joshua before he entered into battle, he now is giving to the people of God before he takes his last breath. Just wanna quickly mention the book of the law. Um, when, you, when you read that here in, in Joshua, when it talks about the book of the law or the instructions of Moses, those words are interchangeable. They refer to the very words or the revelation that God had given to the people. 
Later on, that would comprise of what was deemed as the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Likely at the time, maybe was being passed around more in an oral tradition, but later on, he's referring to the book of the law, the the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses um, is in reference to that law. And, And that's so important because you have to keep in mind that the law was God's gracious provision given to Israel so that they could have a relationship with God. We know that from the very beginning, because of sin, sin separated a holy God and an unholy people. So, so sin created this gap, this chasm that made it impossible for humanity to have any type of relationship with God. And so though the law was imperfect until Jesus Christ came, we would not have that perfect fellowship, that perfect relationship. But the reality is the law was given to Israel so that there could be a venue, a way, for Israel to start to have some type of relationship with a holy God. The law allowed them to to draw near through a mediator. They could go behind the veil once a year where they could offer sacrifices, where they they could be made right with God and have relationship with him. So when he says, I want you to obey everything the law, he said, I want you to obey this gracious provision that has been given to you so that you can have a relationship with me. The one who is unflinching in his or her commitment to God's word is blessed. The psalmist says this, Psalm 1 verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, uh, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law he meditates, or the picture that you get is he chews the cud, That is the idea of meditation he reflects on and he continues to digest and work through that word. That person meditates on the law day and night. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So what are the implications? The challenge here, the first exhortation that Joshua gives the people is I want you to be unflinching in your commitment to obey everything that the word of God gives to us. So what are the implications for us? I'm just, we're gonna throw those up on the screen. You can see them. Um, If you're a note taker, I'm gonna give these to you quickly. You might wanna take a picture instead. Um, But number one, we must embrace, we must embrace all of scripture as the inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Number two, we must view God's word as authoritative. That means that it has the final authority in and over our life. Number three, we must believe his word as absolute truth. His word is absolute truth. There, it, it is the firm foundation. It is the rock. It is what never changes. Number four, we must understand that his word is profitable to us today in all matters of life and spiritual development. How many believe that the word of God is profitable for our life today, that it's useful, um, that, it, that it's not just something that we read and say, oh, that was a great story. Um, uh, maybe I'll read it again sometime. The word of God is profitable. It is alive and it can change our lives. Number five, we must realize that his word, it is life transforming. I can't tell you how many people who, who gave themselves to studying, meditating, and reading the word of God, their lives were changed by that very word. Number six, we must seek to know him 
through an unwavering devotion to his word, through reading his word, meditating on his word, memorizing his word. Thy word have I hidden in my heart. Why? So that I will not sin against God. His word is powerful. It's alive. We should try to memorize it so that when temptation comes, so that when difficulties come, we can begin to quote in our head or out loud the scriptures that that begin to show how beautiful and how powerful his word is. And number seven, we must be warned that departure or deviation from his word will bring serious consequences for you, those around you, possibly an entire community. So the first exhortation Joshua gives, he says, he says to them, he's asking them the question, who are you going to serve? You need to be unflinching in your commitment to the word of God. Number two, give this one to you quickly. We must be vigilant to maintain separation from the world. Um, when Joshua gave this command to Israel, he had something specific in mind. He had separation from the Canaanite people, especially in regarding to marriage. He was referring to intermarrying between Canaanites and Israelites or Amorites or whoever was in the land. And he wanted them to maintain separation for a very specific reason, because this is a new group of people that are just learning what it means to have fellowship and communion with God. They, they were in slavery for 430 years. They, they, didn't, they didn't know what it looked like to live a free life. They were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Now they're in this land with beautiful resources. They still have enemies in that land. So, so Joshua is instructing them to maintain separation because he's afraid that if they don't, they're gonna start following the ways of the other gods. In Joshua 23, verse seven, it says, make sure you do not associate with the other people still remaining in the land. Do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them or worship them. Joshua 23, verse 12 and 13, but if, it, but if you turn away from him and cling to the customs of the survivors of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry with them, then know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive them out of your land and Instead, they will be a snare and a trap to you, a whip for you, uh, for your backs and thorny brambles in your eyes, and you will vanish from this good land the Lord your God has given you. So when Joshua says to be vigilant about maintaining separation from the world, from his perspective in this context, he's referring to remaining separate from the Canaanite people, especially in regards to marriage. He called them for the people to not to associate with foreign nations. He feared that if they associated with them and eventually married them, that it would eventually lead to compromise and defection of serving Yahweh and Yahweh alone. That was Solomon's issue. Solomon, um, the guy that's supposed to be all wise, uh, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't consider that wisdom, all right? Um, no offense to anybody. Um, I think we would all agree that, that Solomon, but, but that was his downfall because he, he, had, he lusted for and he had, um, he had a desire to be with all of these women, women from all different nations that served different gods. And so Solomon then all of a sudden became a guy who for a time was polytheistic. He served many gods because of of that intermarrying and that intermixing. And so this command is not to, this command not to associate with foreign nations, it was repeated often. You can read in, in Deuteronomy where it says uh, to remain separate, to serve the Lord and the Lord only again, because this is a new group of people trying to learn what it looks like to be followers of Jesus Christ. So I, I wanna ask this question, how can we, how can we maintain separation from the secular world while reaching this world for Christ, because we are called to, to be different. We're called to be set apart from the world. But at the same time, we are called to, to do what? We're called to engage this world that is lost, broken, hurting, in need of Jesus Christ. So how can we be separate while also fulfilling the command that God has given us to engage this world? First of all, we need to remember this world is not our final home. We are not supposed to be citizens here. Our citizenship is where? In heaven. 
We are just foreigners who are passing through, so this world is not our final home. Sin corrupted creation. Our world is broken and shattered, and we're not supposed to pattern our lives after this world because this is not our home. We are supposed to pattern our lives after Christ where our citizenship resides in heaven. That should be, that. that's why Paul will say, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but what, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we're not supposed to pattern our lives after this world, but after the world to which God has called us to. Number two, we are called to be on mission for Christ now. So just because we're called to be separate, to be different, doesn't mean we can ignore the mission that Christ has given us. That doesn't mean we can wait 20, 30, 40, 50 years or until my very last breath before I engage the mission. No, we are called to be on mission for Christ now, not later. The Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're to be witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We are to be what? Salt and light. And so if that is our call, if we're gonna be separate, how can we engage this mission of God? We're called to be ambassadors of Christ. We are to speak on behalf and represent Christ. And so that is our mission, but we also recognize that we are called to be separate from this world. So how do we merge the two? We must learn to live our lives in this world on mission for Jesus with godly parameters in place. And I'm sorry, I'm just gonna give this to you um, and, and if hopefully, hopefully you can walk away with something, if something doesn't make sense, um, talk to me afterwards, but I just want to, I want to give these, these to you. We must learn to live our lives in this world on mission for Jesus with godly parameters in place. So how do we do that? What does that look like? One, we have to be strong in our godly convictions. How are we going to be separate while also engaging this world that is broken, that needs Jesus Christ? We have to be strong in our godly convictions. We cannot waver. Number two, we need to know our limitations. We need to know how, how much we can handle. Uh, We need to know what's gonna cause us to stumble or what's gonna cause somebody else to stumble. Number three, we need to seek out ongoing Christian accountability. We need brothers and sisters in the Lord who will speak into our life, who will encourage us, who will point out when maybe I've gone a little bit too far. We need those people in our life that will say, hey, Kyle, you know, I I noticed that, that you're doing this and I want to help you. Number four, we need to devote ourselves to the spiritual disciplines, to reading, praying, and fasting, reading God's word, praying and fasting, seeking God's direction. We need to clothe ourselves with the armor of God. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against the principalities and and the rulers of this world. And so we have to clothe ourselves with the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. We need to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We need to put on the full armor of God. If we're going to live in this world and, and also engage in reaching this world for Christ, this is probably my favorite thing. We need to know that Jesus isn't praying for our dismissal from this world, but he is praying for your protection. Look at what Jesus says in in John chapter 17, verse 14 and 15. This is Jesus's prayer, his high priestly prayer, just before his own death. This is what Jesus says. I have given them your word. He's praying to his father in heaven. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Verse 15, I'm not asking, Jesus says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. So we're to be different, set apart from the world. But Jesus doesn't say, now I'm just gonna rip you out of this world so you don't have to deal with it. Jesus is saying, I want you to engage this world. I want you to reach this world for Christ. But while you are in it, I am praying that God would protect you from the Holy One. And then number, I I lost my count, but letter G on my notes. Uh, Seek to reflect the character of Christ and learn to pattern our life 
after his. How do we live? How do we live in this world on mission for Jesus while, while also being separate from the world? We have to learn how to reflect the character of Christ and, and pattern our lives after him, not try to pattern our lives after a world that is corrupt, distorted, and broken. And finally, number three, the final exhortation that Joshua gives, number one was to be unflinching in their commitment to the word. Number two uh, was to um, be vigilant, uh, be vigilant in maintaining separation from the world. And number three is just simply, we must love God fervently. We must love him fervently. Joshua 23, verse 11, he says, so be very careful to love the Lord your God. Loving God certainly includes our affections and our emotions. But what Joshua is really saying to Israel and what he has in mind is he wants them to, to have the sole recognition of God as God to the exclusion of any other rival. Uh, let, let me simplify that for you. Exodus 20, verse three, the very, if you know the 10 commandments, the very first of the 10 commandments is this. It's, it's written, it says, you must not have any other God but me. And, and so to the exclusion of any other God, so he wants our sole recognition that he, God, is God and there is no other rival. One of the songs that we sing, what a beautiful name in the bridge, we read these words, you have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever our God reigns, yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. He has no rival, we are to have no other God but him. And so when he calls us to love him fervently, he is calling us to love him and to recognize him as God and God alone. God desires not partial, but full, exclusive devotion and service to him. Deuteronomy 6, we read it in our opening text, uh, call to worship the Lord our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, or all your heart, soul, and your strength, and commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all your heart and soul. What he's calling us to do is to love him. As I said earlier, the, the simple definition is just to love him with all of our very all, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's, that's what it means. If you were to just put it down into its basic form, it means to love God with all of our entire being. My question is this, do we have both of our feet in God's camp or are we trying to keep one foot over here in God's camp and another foot in the camp of this world? Because the reality is we, we know later on Jesus will say, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve me, manna. You can only serve me and me alone. What are the implications then for us? I would challenge us to ask ourselves these questions. Would you stand with me? Um, challenge us to ask ourselves these questions. Just hang with me for another minute or two and we're gonna um, close this portion of the service and, and then enter into our, our dedication this morning. What are the implications for us? Does my schedule, just getting down to the very practical here, does my schedule reflect exclusive devotion to Christ or something else competing for my time and my attention? Am I approaching my relationship with God from the buffet perspective where I wanna have everything, I wanna serve God, but I also want everything that this world can offer because that's not how we can approach God. He wants our all. Does my schedule reflect exclusive devotion to him or something else competing? And these are questions, I can't answer these for you. These are questions you have to ask yourself and you have to answer. We all have to answer. 
Do the distribution of my resources reflect exclusive devotion to Christ or am I trying to serve two masters? Am I trying to serve God and the things of this world? Neutrality is not an option. He wants all of us. We know the story, I said it before, the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler um, came to God, came, came to Jesus, says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy had everything, he had wealth. He said, you know, I want you to follow the commandments of this world. And, and, and he said, well, or the commandments, the, the commandments I've given you, I, I, I've served God. I don't have any other gods but you. And um, I've not murdered, I've not committed adultery. And, and so he says to Jesus, what else do I lack? And, and Jesus looks at the man, the rich young ruler. He says, I want you to go sell your possessions and give to the poor, then come follow me. The man walked away sad. Why? Because he did have another God. He, he wasn't serving God wholeheartedly. For him, it was money. Money was his issue. For others, it might be something else. But for the rich young ruler, he wasn't willing. He wanted to serve God, but he still wanted to hold on to this area in his life that he wanted control over. And he wasn't willing to surrender to God. And because of that, he walked away. Sad. Will you close your eyes with me this morning?